Welcome to episode 206 of the TruthQuest podcast, the truth about the Articles of Confederation. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and discussions come up about the Second Amendment, abortion, the baby formula shortage, the absurdity of the mainstream media, or the purposeful destruction of the country, please share the TruthQuest podcast with your friend. Tell them to browse the episodes and start diving in. Episodes are available on a host of platforms including iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Podbean, BitChute, Rumble, and Instagram where I post a short highlight of each show at instagram.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Whatever platform you may be listening to this on, please take a moment to give it a five-star rating, hit the like button, or leave a positive review. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest Podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through online advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for details. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Anyone who listens to even two or three episodes of this podcast knows that the Constitution is my lodestar. It's America's rule book and therefore needs to be followed. I don't claim it's perfect. It doesn't have to be. It's really no different than the rules of any sport or the rules of your employer. Whatever the case, the rules must be followed. They're there for a reason. In sports, you have referees and umpires who ensure the rules are enforced. In companies, you have human resources and your manager. The Constitution provides us with referees and umpires via the court system and the checks and balances built into the system. Unfortunately, our court system is corrupt and full of judicial activists who either ignore the Constitution or bastardize it in order to arrive at a particular political goal. It's no different than a referee or umpire who's on the take. He ignores certain fouls or infractions by one team while calling every ticky-tack foul on the other. The checks and balances built into the system have failed us as well. The states rarely stand up to the overreach of the federal government, and Congress has self-neutered itself and never challenges the executive branch by using the power of the purse granted by the Constitution. Today we're going to discuss the first Constitution of the United States, the Articles of Confederation. When you read about the Articles, you cannot avoid coming across serious critics of the Constitution, which of course replaced it. In this episode, I will examine the Articles as well as present the critique of the Constitution. By the end of 1776, a plan was developed to transform the Continental Congress into a legal entity through the adoption of a Republican framework that took the form of a written Constitution. The proposal called for the creation of a confederation, a league of sovereign countries, which would serve as a general agent to the states on matters the states deemed convenient. The effort was spearheaded by John Dickinson, an esteemed lawyer from Pennsylvania that played a key role in the colonial resistance against the Stamp Act and the Townsend's Act. As a starting point, I want to give you a flavor of the articles. As I share some key provisions, listen for some key phrases that were obviously borrowed and used in the new Constitution after having been borrowed from the various state constitutions for the articles. It starts out, Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union between the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island, and Providence Plantations, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Article 2 reads, Each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. 
So that's an unmistakable embrace of federalism and decentralization. Citizens were connected to their home state, which remained the most basic and important relationship in the American political system. Article 3 has to do with common defense, mutual and general welfare. It reads, The said states hereby severally enter into a firm league of friendship with each other for their common defense, the security of their liberties, and their mutual and general welfare, binding themselves to assist each other against all forces offered to or attacks made upon them or any of them. Then we move on to Article 4, which has to do with privileges and immunities across state lines, and it reads in part, The better to secure and perpetual mutual friendship and intercourse among the people of the different states of this union, the free inhabitants of each of these states shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of free citizens in the several states. The people of each state shall free ingress and regress to and from any other state and shall enjoy therein all privileges of trade and commerce. So basically, there's provisions in there about extradition, which I didn't read to you. Uh, Obviously, free movement and, as I mentioned, privileges and immunities are all carried over from one state to the other. Article 5 has to do with how delegates are appointed and recalled. I love this. Delegates shall be annually appointed in such manner as the legislature of each state shall direct with the power reserved to each state to recall its delegates or any of them at any time within the year and to send others in their stead for the remainder of the year. How awesome is that? You can recall congressmen. They're not elected. They're appointed. How much better off would we be as a nation if the state legislatures could recall congressmen for not doing the bidding of the people they were sent to represent? If you recall, the new Constitution used this same concept for senators. They were appointed by the state legislature and subject to recall until the corrupt 17th Amendment ended that, and now the 100 seats in the Senate are essentially subject to national elections every six years. This article continues, No state shall be represented in Congress by less than two, nor more than seven members, and no person shall be capable of being a delegate for more than three years in any term of six years. Nor shall any person being a delegate be capable of holding any office under the United States for which he or another in his benefits receives any salary, fees, or emolument of any kind. How can you not love that? Term limits and no pay. This article continues. In determining questions in the United States in Congress assembled, each state shall have one vote. So basically, the delegates for each state have to come to an agreement and vote as one. This likely served as the Senate did in the new Constitution. Supposedly, it's the cooling saucer of the American political system. Getting consensus among the states is hard enough, but getting it within each state may prove even harder. In other words, violent swings of opinion or implementation of crazy programs or policies would be highly unlikely under the Articles of Confederation. Article 6 deals with treaties, war, standing army, and militia, and it reads in part, No state without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled shall send an embassy to or receive any embassy from or enter into any conference, agreement, alliance, or treaty with any king, prince, or state. No two or more states shall enter into treaty, confederation, or alliance, whatever, between them without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled. So essentially, there's no going rogue when it comes to treaties. you got to stand together as a confederation. It goes on. No vessel of war shall be kept up in time of peace by any state, except such number only as shall be deemed necessary by the United States in Congress assembled for the defense of such state or its trade. 
but every state shall always keep up a well-regulated and disciplined militia. So basically, no state shall have an army or navy per se, but they need to have a militia, i.e. a National Guard-like force at the ready at all times. It continues, No state shall engage in any war without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled. Basically, we go to war together or we don't go to war. It does give a provision of imminent danger or there's no time to pull Congress together. Article 7 has to do with officers in the Army. It reads, When land forces are raised by any state for the common defense, all officers of or under the rank of colonel shall be appointed by the legislature of each state, respectively. Again, the state legislature is where the power lays under the Articles of Confederation. Article 8 talks about taxation and apportionment. All charges of war and all other expenses that shall be incurred for the common defense of general welfare and allowed by the United States in Congress assembled shall be defrayed out of a common treasury, which shall be supplied by the several states in proportion to the value of all land within each state. It goes on. The taxes for paying that proportion shall be laid and levied by the authority and direction of the legislatures of the several states within the time agreed upon by the United States in Congress assembled. Here's the beauty of this. Taxes were to be paid by each state in proportion to the value of the land. Congress would set an amount they needed and apportion it out to the states who would collect the money from their citizens and send it to Congress for the common treasury. They would say something like, we need a million dollars for naval ships. Massachusetts, you owe us 80000 Virginia, you owe us 175000 New York, 225000 New Hampshire, 50000 Article 9 discusses enumerated powers. And here are some of the enumerated powers for Congress. Sending and receiving ambassadors, entering into treaties and alliances, of granting letters of marquee and reprisal in times of peace, appointing courts for the trial of piracy and felonies committed on the high seas. It goes on, fixing the standards of weights and measures throughout the United States, regulating the trade and managing affairs of, with the Indians, establishing and regulating post offices, appointing all officers of the land forces and the naval forces, trade, post office, armed forces. It kind of sounds a lot like Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Basically, they're just listing off all their enumerated powers, but none of it means shit unless the majority in Congress agree. There's no executive orders because there's no executive. There's no judicial activism because there's no Supreme Court. There's no federal courts at all. Article 10 just reemphasizes the fact that you got to have nine states voting in order to do anything, basically. And then there's an interesting provision. Uh, Article 11 uh, basically says Canada can join the Confederation at any time as a member state on equal footing, but the addition of any other states required the consent of nine of the 13. That, I thought that was kind of an interesting piece. Article 11 has to do with payment of debts and borrowing of money. And Article 12 talks about the acceptance of this agreement and how to amend it. So obviously the states are agreeing to the articles. They're claiming the union is perpetual, which in 18th century legal terminology, it doesn't mean everlasting. It just means there's no sunset date at this point. And it goes on to talk about that there's, you can't make changes to the articles unless there's agreement by the legislatures of every state, making it very difficult to change, similar to the Constitution. The Articles were agreed to in Congress on November 15, 1777, and were finally ratified by the last state, Maryland, in March of 1781. 
Now you know a little bit about the articles. Now let's examine the good, the bad, and the ugly. First, the good, the benefits of the articles. The best part of the articles is what is not contained in it. There's no president. Executive power would reside in the executives of the state governments. Because there's no executive, there's no executive branch and no federal bureaucracy. No unelected bureaucratic establishment that would come later in American history. This prevented the imposition of rule by civil officials rather than representation by elected delegates. There's no Supreme Court, no judicial authority at all. That authority would remain in the state courts. The federal government or Congress had no power whatsoever to tax. Whatever money they needed, they had to apportion to the states, but they had no enforcement mechanism. Talk about keeping the central government small and limited. No money, no power. So with no federal taxation means no immoral income tax, which meant no prying eyes and spying IRS. This, of course, is also cited as a huge weakness in the articles, as we'll discuss in a minute. There's no federal control of interstate commerce. Congress could not raise an army or draft troops. It prohibited a national standing army where government maintained a permanent and professional army and held monopoly on arms. Standing armies had led to the end of republics in both Rome and England, so our founding generation didn't want anything to do with that. While Congress, under the Articles, had the authority to regulate and fund the army or the military, it had no power to raise the army or navy, and could not compel the states to comply with any requests for troops or funding, restricting greatly any power to go to war. The Articles meant a weak central government, if you could even call it that. It was one branch of government. Congress could make decisions, but had no power of enforcement. Rather than bestowing a general power to enact law on every conceivable subject, it was decided that Congress, a unicameral legislature, should only have the authority to pass laws on a predefined list of enumerated topics. What all this meant was that the states were sovereign, and no national government existed in any real sense. State legislatures had all the power, even having the power to recall members of Congress. Each state had an absolute equal say in proceedings which protected the smaller states from the more populous ones. That provision may have been a foreshadowing of the Electoral College, which was the subject of episode 134, if you're interested. So that's the good. How about the bad, the problems with the Articles of Confederation? Well, as I just mentioned, the number one critique of the Articles is Congress's inability to compel the payment of taxes. It could only requisition the states and hope they paid up. But in many cases, they didn't. This caused significant funding problems during the American Revolution and was one of the main factors driving the ratification of a new constitution empowering the general government to levy taxes. Others cited the difficulty of amending the Articles as a problem because it required all the states to agree, but the constitution isn't much better requiring two-thirds of the states to ratify an amendment. It's so onerous that the last amendment to the current constitution was ratified 30 years ago. It had to do with congressional pay. Instead, progressives use the courts to create new rights, and executive orders are used to move otherwise unconstitutional policies along. Other detractors point to the ability of states to enact crippling economic policies, such as during the 1780s when several states enacted protective tariffs, or they passed individual debt forgiveness measures that absolved individuals of debts in other states. And some states printed their own money, which of course rapidly depreciated in value and penalized savings. These policies by and large inhibited free trade, heightened tensions between states, and punished creditors. In addition to this, the Articles did not require coinage in gold and silver and permitted Congress to print paper bills of credit. 
All of this transpired even after the disastrous continental currency, which ruined the value of money and became virtually worthless by 1780. Doesn't sound much different than modern-day America, does it? We have a Federal Reserve that just prints dollars digitally and devalues it on a daily basis. We have record high inflation today as I record this. The U.S. dollar is continental currency 2.0. Another critique is the fact that the articles did not establish any type of law enforcement apparatus. No FBI, no CIA, no NSA, no Homeland Security. Consequently, almost all enactments of Congress had to be carried out by the individual states. This had the effect of making some laws and decisions virtually futile. Again, I don't really see a problem with that. Among these complaints and other problems, the convention was called to convene in May of 1787, which later became known as the Philadelphia Convention, with the purpose of proposing amendments to the Articles of Confederation. Instead, a new constitution was drafted and ratified and replaced the Articles, which faded into relative obscurity, and of course, the Confederation Congress ceased to exist. I want to pause here and introduce or reintroduce you to the Anti-Federalists, who opposed this new constitution. Turns out, they had it right. I covered them way back in episode 75. That episode, by the way, is the most listened to episode of the TruthQuest podcast. How nuts is that? An episode about the Anti-Federalists? Anyways, they made the case that the Constitution writers in Philadelphia exceeded the mandates they were given to amend the Articles of Confederation. Richard M. Gamble wrote, The Anti-Federalists saw a conspiracy to rob the American people of the liberties recently preserved by them in the war against Britain. The primary complaint of these Anti-Federalists can be summed up by Robert Yates, who was writing as Brutus in colonial newspapers. He said, quote, They may so exercise this power as entirely to annihilate all the state governments and reduce this country to one single government. And if they may do it, it is pretty certain they will, for it will be found that the power retained by individual states, small as it is, will be a clog upon the wheels of the government of the United States. The latter, therefore, will be naturally inclined to remove it out of the way, end quote. The Anti-Federalists made specific predictions about what would happen if the Constitution was ratified, including the newly formed federal government would eventually establish despotism, or worse, a tyrannical aristocracy. They thought that both the President and the Senate would be held by an aristocracy, with no incentive for either one to keep the other in line. Can you say the establishment? Can you say the swamp? Some of the more prescient objections by the Anti-Federalists were related to the ambiguity of the necessary and proper, the general welfare, and the supremacy clauses of the Constitution, which were, in their eyes, windows into limitless federal power. They were correct on that one, too. They argued that a republic can only survive long-term if it's small. They complained that the country in the 18th century, with a population of 3 million and 13 states, was already too big. We now have 50 states and almost 350 million people. They hated the idea of the judiciary. They suggested that matters previously subject to state jurisdiction would be pulled into the judicial orbit. Amen, bro. The federal court system is a sham. There are, what, six federal crimes mentioned in the Constitution? Now everything's a federal case. The Anti-Federalists predicted it. Yates wrote, quote, It is easy to see that in the common course of things, these courts will eclipse the dignity and take away from the respectability of the state courts. 
He goes on to describe the leftist activists in the federal courts today by saying, quote, men placed in this situation will generally soon feel themselves independent of heaven itself. Brutus also warned us about stare decisis, the court's ruling by precedent, when he wrote, quote, perhaps nothing could be better conceived to facilitate the abolition of the state governments than the constitution of the judicial. They will be able to extend the limits of the general government gradually and by insensible degrees, and to accommodate themselves to the temper of the people. One adjudication will form a precedent to the next, and this to the following one, end quote. Ain't that the truth? So we've discussed the good, the bad, and now let's discuss the ugly. The ugly is essentially what I'm calling the modern-day anti-federalists, who make many of the same points only with historical evidence to back up what the first anti-federalists predicted would happen. These modern-day anti-federalists vehemently oppose the replacement of the Articles of Confederation. They call the Constitution illegal because it was done in secret and without the consent of the people. As I mentioned, the delegates that participated in the Philadelphia Convention were there to propose amendments to the Articles. Instead, the country got an entirely new document. These thinkers go as far as describing the Constitution as a coup. They've called it a heinous document, a fraud, that has led to the destruction of liberty. Right off the bat, given the evidence, you have to give this line of thinking some credence. These thinkers question the so-called worship of the United States Constitution, especially when they hear people claim that they are the source of their rights. This criticism hits the bullseye. Rights are God-given or natural. The Constitution simply documents some that are protected from the federal government. The modern-day anti-federalists also correctly point out that the Constitution was meant only to expand the powers of the central government, or the national government, at the expense of the states and the individual. Well, the evidence of that is overwhelming. Gary Barnett, a leading thinker in this modern-day anti-federalist space, explained the sad state of affairs this way, quote, What began as the freest country on earth has turned into a tyrannical fascist oligarchy, all under the so-called protection of the U.S. Constitution, end quote. Think about all the unconstitutional acts and agencies that I rail against in virtually every episode. The EPA, the SEC, the TSA, Homeland Security, NSA, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, vaccine mandates, lockdowns, the Patriot Act. They all exist today, despite the fact that the Constitution does not grant the federal government the power to do any of it. What if the Articles were still in force? Do you think the state legislatures, who ultimately had all the power, would have agreed to allow the feds to dictate environmental laws, tell them where and when they can drill for oil and natural gas on their own sovereign territory? Do you think they would put up with no border security? Or what about abortion? You see what's happening in the post-Dobbs world right now. What about gun control or education? You think the state legislators would willingly turn over their children's education to a failed federal bureaucracy? And how many millions of people would have been saved from death and displacement over the last two centuries, all over the world, by America's undeclared wars? Here are some further thoughts by Gary Burnett that will help tie a bow on this episode. Quote, Those who signed and accepted the Constitution in 1787 did so without the legal consent of most living at that time, and as no valid voluntary contract existed between individuals and government, then it should be understood that there certainly is no valid contract today. As far as I'm concerned, the U.S. Constitution is a dead letter. Here's another quote. The Constitution allowed for the usurpation of power by the executive branch. 
It allowed federal courts to approve and sanction authoritarianism by the government over the people. It allowed for legalized forcible theft by the federal government in the form of taxation. And it allowed the federal government both the ability to collect taxes for war and to also prosecute those wars. These egregious powers given by the Constitution to the central government are completely antithetical to liberty and should never have been considered by any men of character. And finally, here's another money quote from Barnett. Quote, We now have exactly what the original ruling class desired, an all-powerful central government ruling over the lower classes. This is a rule by the few over the many. It's tough to argue with all of that. The country certainly is run by oligarchs. Look at the long-standing members of Congress, Pelosi, Schumer, McCarthy, McConnell. Think about the Bushes, the Kennedys, the Clintons. Look at the dual justice system. Look at how bureaucrats in the deep state really run this country. None of this would be possible under the Articles of Confederation. Were the Articles of Confederation perfect? Nope. Is the Constitution perfect? Uh, clearly not, since it's been largely ignored and bastardized over the last 150 or so years. The Articles of Confederation. No president, no executive branch of government, which is the source of most of our problems today. No Federal Reserve, another primary source of problems. No federal judiciary, no federal crimes, no law enforcement, CIA, FBI, NSA, and all the other armed federal agencies. No real taxing authority. No IRS. Term limits on members of Congress. But most importantly, almost complete control remained in the hands in the state legislatures, including the ability to recall members of Congress. Which would I prefer? Definitely the Articles, with an amendment or two to deal with the currency and an enforcement mechanism for the collection of the apportioned taxes. None of this bullshit income tax. With that said, the Constitution is America's rule book, and its rules should be followed. If the country operated within those rules, I believe the future remains bright. However, the amount of damage done to the country caused by power brokers operating outside the rule book, ignoring the rule book, changing the rule book, have been substantial. So much needs to be done to right the ship, starting with our currency. No more fiat currency, sound money only, a gold standard as dictated by the Constitution. If you're interested in a deep dive into the Federal Reserve or sound money, check out episodes 27, 28, 62, and 162. Next, every unconstitutional federal agency and its accompanying bureaucracy must be abolished. If you want to hear a list, check out episode 198, The Truth About What's Not in the Constitution. And that's the truth about the Articles of Confederation. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. <laughs>